This is The Guardian. Hast du genug von Werbung, die deine Comedy-Podcast-Party zum Absturz bringt? Gute Nachrichten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash comedypodcasts, um keine neuen Folgen mehr zu verpassen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. This week we're in Westminster because of something happening a long way from here. COP28, the annual climate summit, is happening in Dubai. Uh, we've come here to talk about the climate emergency, the politics of it, Britain's role in all of this, with two politicians. Firstly, Caroline Lucas, the former leader of the Green Party, who's been an MP since 2010 and has been sounding the climate alarm in the House of Commons ever since. We're also going to be joined by Chris Skidmore, who's in a really interesting position, actually. He's a Conservative MP for the moment, who has very, very strong views about the urgency of climate action. And those views have made him a real thorn in Rishi Sunak's side. There's a big queue outside here, so let's set about trying to get in. <laughs> Caroline and Chris, hello. 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 Before we really get started, I wanted to get a sense of your respective positions on the climate crisis. Now, if you can answer this, you know, in a, about 20 seconds each, it's a ludicrously large question. But in terms of British politics, I wonder what each of you thinks needs to change to get us broadly on the right track as far as climate is concerned. Caroline first. Well, what needs to change is that government needs to stop digging fossil fuels out of the ground. I mean, that's the bottom line. So we can talk as much as we like about, you know, breaking renewable energy targets or any, even energy efficiency, although we don't do enough of that. But essentially, as long as we go on green lighting more and more oil and gas in the North Sea, giving the go ahead to the Rosebank oil field, then that is what's driving climate emissions. And we've got to stop doing the bad stuff as well as start doing the good stuff. Chris, I'd agree with all of that, but I'd also Do you, you don't want any any new oil or gas I think there's exploration a huge, or, or yeah, fields I think opening in the North so, Sea. So I mean, this is what the International Energy Authority, the UN Triple uh, C, have all committed to saying: if you want to hit net zero, you can't open a new additional oil fields. Now, the important thing here is that I'm not. I don't belong to just stop oil. The point is here is I still accept we need existing oil and gas as the Committee on Climate Change has suggested on the net zero pathway. They've got a planned system, but what the government is thinking about doing is opening new oil fields like Rosebank goes against our climate policies and our commitments, but also goes is against economic sense. So my perspective as a conservative is this is going to lead to stranded assets, stranded jobs. We should be putting that money, that investment into the technologies of the future and not the past. Okay. Um, now, this week, as we all know, many of the world's leaders, not all of them, uh, will meet in Dubai for the Conference of the Parties, a.k.a. COP28, the annual meeting intended for governments to uh, get together and agree, supposedly, on politics to limit global temperature rises and somehow address issues linked to climate change. Now, the mood music surrounding COP28 so far, it's fair to say, is by no means ideal. The conference president, Al Jabba, is also head of the United Arab Emirates state-owned oil firm. So we sort of know where he sits day to day in the midst of the climate crisis. And leaked documents have purportedly shown that the UAE wants to use this conference to make oil deals, something which um, Al Jabba has strenuously denied. Sitting here right now in the lead-up to this, are either of you going, incidentally? 
uh, are we going? Okay. I'm heading out. I'll be there from Monday uh, to Friday next week. Okay. Does it feel sort of broken back from the start, do you think? I'm actually quite positive because some of the you know, initial uh, discussions, negotiations, these cops don't sort of happen by magic. There is a lot of preparation and they fail if you haven't actually got a plan. But there seems to be a plan that's been worked on by the States and Germany to treble uh, renewable power, to potentially double energy efficiency measures and potentially increase the amount of action taken on methane emissions, which we know is 54 times more warming than CO2. And China and the US having that sort of meeting of their two presidents the other month, you know, they both committed to this. So we've got the sort of two big economies in the room. We could actually see some additional action, which would be really welcome. Okay. Can you put a positive gloss or even try to on the fact that the chair of the conference is also the head of a state-owned oil firm? Because you could make the argument that they're the people who've got to change their behavior. You could perhaps make a postulation that it would be possible in theory for someone who's head of an oil company to be the right person to be running this conference. But but isn't it like asking Cadbury's to stop making well, chocolate? Absolutely, it is. And we know the point I was going to make was that Adnoc actually has a really bad record in terms of transparency. This is the state-owned oil firm in this question. This is the name of the state oil company in, in question. It has a very bad record in terms of transparency, in terms and of... what's your gut instinct of how that will go? Only in the sense that um, I just know from experience that when cops get going, if you're, there's anything rational about you, the most obvious thing to do is to feel sceptical about them. Yeah. Let's I mean, be honest. I- I, I do feel sceptical about that. I mean, over on COPs overall, I mean, I think I feel quite conflicted because they are the only show in town and they are the one show where climate vulnerable countries, the global south, actually do have a voice and they can make that voice heard as they did very effectively to get the 1.5 degree threshold um, reduced from where it was going to be two degrees we're supposed to be staying below. Now it's 1.5. So, so it's been shown that poorer countries the global south can have real leverage at these meetings so that makes them positive on the other hand as you say we know that the fossil fuel delegations are going to be out in force and by some estimates they're going to be bigger than any individual country delegation and therefore i think it is going to be really hard to get the kind of outcome that we need and when it comes to oil and gas what we need in my view is to be very clear that we need to be phasing out all new oil and gas not just the unabated oil and gas when was the last one that on balance you felt good about COP-wise? Glasgow, I think. So, you know, really? when, yeah, I mean, I think the, the commitments that were made there, obviously, the point that Carol is making around phase out. See, Alex Sharma really wanted to get phase out for phase out of coal, uh, and he didn't. He got phased down, and obviously he was in tears at the end, and everyone remembers that moment. There were some great other sort of commitments in, in Glasgow. It meant that 90% of the world's uh, GDP is now under a net zero target of some form compared to like 30% before. So you know, net zero went viral at Glasgow. The success of this COP, I agree with Caroline, will come down to that wording. It's not semantics. A huge difference between whether we have an end date, a phase-out date. Uh, 200 companies, including WH Smiths and Virgin Mobile, have just called for a phase-out. If we end up with phase-down, it's back to business as usual. Yeah, exactly. I think finance, if I could just say as well, is, is massively important. And there was one little glimmer of hope from the last COP, even COP27, where they did agree... You mean in terms of transfers of funds, essentially, from the global north to the global south to mitigate the worst effects and acknowledge also that the West has a, a much greater culpability in climate Absolutely. change? Absolutely. We have screwed over the countries in the global south for very many years. And since 2009, I think we've been promising, as, uh, as the richer countries, to give $100 billion uh, I think uh, a year to poorer countries to enable them to to adapt um, and indeed mitigate against climate change. And we are only just, I think, coming close to that figure now. Separate from that, though, 
is this other fund, which is being called loss and damage. And that fund is an absolute recognition of the fact that many of the poorest countries can't simply adapt to, you know, losing their harvest four times in a row, let's say. That money is supposed to be new and additional money going into that fund. And that, I think, is going to be a real litmus test of this particular COP, because we need to know that our government and other governments are not just going to simply put money in that pot that's come from their existing aid budget, but they are going to use new money. We need to see a bit of imagination to put that money on the table. Otherwise, those countries in the global south will actually have no belief in us at all. We'll have absolutely no authority. We all know the surrounding picture as far as the gravity of the climate emergency is concerned, that the 1.5 degree average rising global temperatures, which was agreed um, in 2015 at the COP summit, is looking almost impossible. And that that's a nightmarish prospect. And I wonder, leaving COPs out of this, let's talk about what this means for politics in general. The most basic sort of notions of politics in terms of voting, government oppositions, the idea that mainstream politics can make a difference, a feeling is settling over lots and lots of people. That politics in that sense isn't up to the job. You know, I'm not the sort of person who feels minded to sit in the road. I don't think it would suit me, but I understand why those people do that. You're both mainstream politicians. You spend all your most of your time here. How much do you feel that, that sense of futility or danger or the idea that this isn't working creeping up on you? I mean, I, I've just published this Mission Zero book that was the Net Zero Review that I did for the government. Yeah. And, and actually, one of the theses there was if we can take this out of Westminster and we can devolve more powers to you know, local regional authorities, there's a huge groundswell of, of not just individuals, but businesses, industries that want to get on with it. Actually, you know, politicians are behind the curve here. You know, we're playing with culture war, literally playing with fire. And people just see this as an opportunity and a moment to, to transition, knowing they're going to have to. There's not only there's no alternative, and they know that they're gonna to have to do this for their businesses. But equally, councils who all declared climate emergencies, you know, want to go further faster. I think give them the tools to get on with it. And, you know, us at Westminster, just you know, get out of the way. But do you understand why people sit in the road and throw soup on paintings and the things that they do, faced with the sense that Westminster is sort of stuck in inertia and lack of action and actually is rowing back, as you've just said a moment ago? I mean, I understand, obviously, people are extremely anxious about the future and have that sort of sense of futility. But I would also say that there is a, an opportunity and an optimism that we can change uh, the course of history. I don't believe in sort of doomerism of just, you know, do nothing. The challenge for me is that those people who sit in the road that potentially block ambulances, you know, are actually doing harm to the climate calls because you know, it's performative uh, and it's actually turning people off. There's far more people in, in, in the country. I think the vast majority of people who want to see climate action, who want to see net zero deliver, I think it's a mistake from my government to think that somehow that people don't want this and they'll pay the, the price for this at the ballot box. But equally, I think you know people should look where they vote, look at what their MPs' record is, and hold them to account. Caroline, presumably you've got a slightly different view about this, and only in the sense that um, you yourself have been arrested for protesting. I have. I sat down outside the uh, fracking site in Bolcom, um and was arrested, but critically also acquitted after a, a week's um, trial, because I think jurors recognize that sometimes people feel driven to break smaller laws in the interest of the bigger law, which is that we shouldn't be consigning our kids to an unlivable future. But can you still make the case for politics? Yes, absolutely. And I think you know, it comes back down to your theory of change, doesn't it? And for me, we need to have that mobilization on the outside and the pressure from the outside, as well as having good people inside here to try to make stuff happen. And I take 
reassurance in a sense from the fact that if you look at, for example, the climate assembly process, you know, a climate assembly is when you get a genuinely cross-sectional This is the climate, of- the climate incarnation of a citizens' assembly, broadly exactly. speaking, where it's exactly. socially representative and as a way of uh, demonstrating perhaps the fact that people are more on board with this than they're given credit for, but also plotting a way through, you can use it, as they did in Ireland on the issue of abortion. Exactly. You can do it equally and I think as far gives, as net zero is concerned. It gives politicians a bit more spine. It gives them a bit more political cover because they can demonstrate that these citizens' assemblies really do want bolder action. And I can promise you every single citizens' assembly I've ever seen on anything, actually, but specifically on climate, comes up with bolder, more ambitious policies than any government. And I think we should take you know, some reassurance from that. There is a willingness for people to go further and faster. So I think the National Citizens Assembly may not be entirely sort of representative of the diversity within a single country. But what you I found really effective is the local citizens' assemblies. So like Oxfordshire Council, for example, uh, agreed that they would take forward the recommendations of the local citizens' assembly. And you have certain localities that are more rural, certain that are more industrial, and, and trying to, I think, reflect that you know, we can get to net zero in different ways. There's not a one-size-fits-all, one-template model, which is why I would go down a route of saying, look, you know, yes, the citizens' assembly is at a local level. In effect, you know, government has citizens' assemblies by using polling. You know, they, they in private rooms they sit down with representative samples of people. But I think that's very um, different. I mean, yeah, of course, it is. Group is, yeah. is not but being given the same information. Around, yeah. But I think for me, you know, using these assemblies as part of that sort of democratic route for local implementation is actually do you not important. think we can do with a national one, given the gravity yeah. of the climate emergency and the fact that Parliament so far is not making ne- and government are not making nearly enough headway to signal the fact that this is the emergency that it clearly is. A National Citizens' Assembly would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Well, I think it needs to be within a legislative process. Because if you, if you, I mean, this is, again, why I disagree with people breaking the law, because once you start to break the law, we need legislation, regulation to, to make the transition happen, and we can't sort of pick and choose. So that's why I sort of feel you've got to work within the system. There's a bill, actually, that we're both um, in, involved in called the Climate and Ecology Bill that is being supported by a group called Zero Hour, and it's been put together by, by a number of scientists um, and experts. And we had quite a, a really robust and interesting debate about the role of citizens' assemblies in there because the bill foresees a citizens' assembly, which would come up with lots of the recommendations, which then the Secretary of State needs to put into their strategy if, if they've got a certain amount of support behind them. But then it is Parliament that has the final say. And I do take the point that the decision-making process needs to be transparent and it needs to be accountable. And so that's why, to that extent, I I think I am on the same page as Chris, that at the end of the day, the final vote has to be by people who are elected, so you can get rid of them if you don't like what they do. But that doesn't mean to say there isn't a role for the the national citizens. Okay, well, talking of which, there is an election coming, which is going to frame the second part of this conversation. We will pause here for a minute. When we come back, we're going to talk um, about why it may not all be terrible news when it comes to the planet. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de/nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Welcome back. We're now going to talk about climate in the context of British politics, but also um, the looming election and where the expectation of that election are sort of pushing both supposedly main parties. 
Chris, I think you you made mention of this a moment ago that net zero, as far as your party for the moment, the Conservative Party is concerned, has been increasingly pushed in the midst of what some people call the culture wars. I think that probably goes back. I mean, it probably goes back a bit further. But the first time I really saw that story break was in the Conservative leadership contest that took place in the summer of 2022, when there was a point where there seemed to be a stampede among the candidates to distance themselves yeah. from net zero. Well, right. I, I was involved in that. I organised the hustings uh, and wrote a, a pledge that I got the, the mainstream candidates all to sign up to net zero. And the reason why I ended up writing the net zero review is because Liz Truss said she believed in net zero, but wanted to do it in a more affordable, efficient way where there's pro-business and growth, and asked me to write the review. And obviously, we got halfway through her fated premiership, and I then refused to vote on that confidence vote on fracking. And I thought I was about to face the chop. But then the next day she resigned, I stayed on to do the report. I'm holding this book up now because it's just been published in paperback. It's maybe the one positive legacy of Liz Truss's final. No, I often say I say it's like a rare Edward VIII coin. I think it might be the, the one thing that actually came out of her, of her premiership at all. She tanked the economy when we got your book. Yeah. I mean, take your pick. <laughs> <laughs> but at that point, that position that the Conservative Party really has stuck to since or returned to is to try and frame the, the climate crisis as something sort of unaffordable and impractical and woke as well. That's the other yeah, poisonous part of all this. They want it to be a culture war issue. And clearly, as a Conservative MP for the time being, although you're standing down at the next election, is that right? Yeah, my seat's being abolished, so I have nowhere to go. How do you feel at the moment about, the, about your party? Uh, this is uh, deeply regrettable, and I couldn't be more opposed uh, to some of the language that's being used you know, I'm still a centre-right Conservative MP. Uh, I frame net zero as, you know, as the minister that signed net zero into law, but it is an economic opportunity for regeneration, for inward investment up to potentially a trillion pounds. It's uh, 480,000 new additional jobs. It should be you know, a Conservative vision uh, for growing our economy. And the energy transition is going to happen anyway. Economically, investors are putting their money you know, in renewable and clean projects, and we risk you know, actually costing the UK jobs, costing the UK growth. And it's just an immature position to take, thinking it's going to somehow shave you off a couple of votes, when actually what we saw with that Uxbridge by-election, if it had gone the other way, 400 votes the other way, we wouldn't have been in this situation. ULEZ had nothing to do with net zero anyway. It was a, it was a pollution measure. And since we've had ULEZ in place, yeah. actually most people have realised they didn't apply to them. It was properly whipping up fear. I mean, it looks morally outrageous when I hear Sunak say, I have two daughters, I understand the gravity of the climate crisis, and yet most of what he announces are postponements and rollbacks. Now, given the fact that we're talking about the future of the earth, would it therefore be better for people to vote Labour at the next election? I think when we look at this next uh, election, people, I think, will be voting for different parties for a variety of different ways. I mean, the challenge, you know, the Conservative has is that we, you know, we signed net zero into law. We backed the Labour Party. I personally want to see the climate and net zero not be politicised. I personally... Well, that's tough. It is. It is. It is tough. But I, it, but, is. It, is, it is deeply politicised because of this Conservative government. Yeah. If a voter out there, and millions do, cares deeply about the climate crisis, how can they in all conscience vote for the party led by Rishi Sunak that is in the position that it's in? Well, I mean, regardless of the rhetoric, actually, the government has committed some good things. <laughs> <laughs> you you know what? I, you are doing your best, but you know what I'm driving at here. There's no case at all on climate grounds for voting Conservative. And although the Labour Party might be imperfect and flawed in various ways on the same issue, by comparison, there is every reason to vote for them. What I don't want to happen is someone who identifies as a Conservative to then think the climate's not for them. Because we need Conservative voters to be around the table you know, just in the same way if, you know, if Trump gets back in, we need Republican voters to not sort of just deny this because then 
We missed five, five years. We missed four years when we haven't got the time. Basically, the, 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 the Tory party has been hijacked by the populist right. And, and the Conservative Party, I think, is no longer what most people think of as a Conservative Party. I think it's pretty serious. And it's not just on climate, although climate is the most serious, but are on a whole range of, of issues. So I, I think the next election is going to be massively important. I think people will be looking at where the government is on, on climate and environment and, and drawing the conclusion that it's not in the right place. And what's your, feeling about, what's your feeling about the Labour Party? It's increasingly unclear, actually, what their bona fides are on what only a matter of, what, a year or two ago was their kind of keynote policy, well, the £28 billion a year climate investment Exactly. And, and that has now been backpedaled on, which is my argument for saying that if there is going to be a Labour government at the next election, then make sure you've got a good number of Greens in there as well to hold them to account, to make them braver, to make sure that they do deliver on the pledges that they've made. Because as you say, on a whole range of issues, in fact, Pledges have been made and then rode back on. Can I ask you both a, a, a slightly different question, but it's related. Chris, in your book, you talk about the idea that politicians need to get the public's permission for climate action. They've got to talk about it. They've got to foreground it. They've got to say, this is as important as it gets, and this is what we have to do. Neither party does that. The next election, uh, whenever it arrives, there'll be a bit of talk about climate, but but whoever talks about it, it'll be, what, fourth or fifth down the list? I mean, the... The reality is, is there isn't you know, a future economy without a green economy. So trying to ground this in the mainstream debate about this isn't the environment as some kind of separate sort of fluffy issue. It's a nice thing to have. You know, it's essential for the future of jobs. It's essential for the future of investment. I want to try to demonstrate it's not the people sitting in the road that turns people off climate action. It's actually mainstream people who are creating jobs and wealth, you know, which for me was, is a conservative vision, was centre-right vision, which I'm trying to get across. That you know, is why that this is so important just more generally as a transition. That also, I would imagine, is something you, the pair of you quite profoundly differ on. Chris, you you have it seems to me the idea that the market economy can save us, right? And that and that if things are orientated correctly, companies operating according to the profit motive and so on will lead us in the right direction. And in that sense, net zero and climate action are easier than they might look. And Caroline, I would suspect you disagree broadly with that kind of idea. We certainly need good regulation for sure, but I think that we also need to recognise that an economic model that is built on more and more exponential economic growth is unlikely to be compatible with keeping a safe climate. And therefore, we need to ask some big questions. And it helps, to, I think, sometimes to, to give this an example. So aviation, you know, if you listen to the government on aviation growth, aviation being one of the fastest growing sources of greenhouse gas emissions, the government will say, don't you worry, we don't need to slow down the growth of aviation. We just need to wait until we get sustainable aviation fuel. First one has just gone to America, I think, New York. But that's one plane that has used quite a bit of biofuel. If you're, you, you cannot, the bottom line I'm, I'm trying to say, John, is that sometimes you have to say that technology, as it is just now at least, is not going to get us out of this hole. The market's not going to get us out of this yeah. hole. What we have to do is to change our behavior. Okay. Now that I know can sometimes be a scary thought, but the bottom line is that when it comes to aviation, we simply cannot go on with a tiny leak, as it tends to be, flying so often. And so therefore... Or everybody, everybody, truth be told. Well, no, I think... You but know, a lot of people get three or four easy jet flights a year. You're not just talking about, you know, international plutocrats here. Well, 50% of the population doesn't fly at all in any given year. And that's why I think you need measures like a frequent flyer levy, which actually was supported by the um, National Climate uh, Citizens Assembly, which would basically mean that the price of the 
flight would ratchet up significantly the more you did it. Do you disagree with that? Yeah, I mean, I building public consent and you know, more taxes. We saw that with the so-called meat tax didn't even exist. It's just like people trying to, you, you play into the hands of those who want you to lose anyway. Yeah. Uh, so my concern is it's a transition. How we take people across those transitions uh, is important. You know, when it comes to looking at climate, I think the sustainable aviation fuel is a way forward. It will decarbonize quite rapidly. in the rapidly. short term, Chris. Come on, you know that it's not. Right now, you know better than anybody well, that it's it's the amount of emissions we put in the atmosphere right now that counts. Yes, not yeah, the yeah, fact yeah, that no, in 20 yeah, but years we, are still we going, might be able yeah, to have sustainable yeah. so, aviation. But you're, you're so. right. We've got to yeah, prioritise. There's things like industrial emissions, like 8% of all industries responsible for 80% of all gas use in this country. That's where we should be putting our investments to decarbonise your know, heavy goods uh, you know, big, uh, industries. But like, we're still going to be flying in 50 years' time. Yeah, We should be looking at trying to create new fuels that will be uh, less in carbon meantime, intensive. Can we really just press on this? Because I think this is a really perfect example of of magical thinking, I think, to be to be blunt, that, yes, there may be a case in 20 years' time when we have enough of a new fuel that means that people don't have to reduce the amount they fly. Right now, we don't have that. Right no, now, we, we, have, we have rates of people flying massively increasing, airport expansion being foreseen and, and going So your ahead. argument is you have to be straight with the public, with the electorate, and say that 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 aspect of people's lifestyles is necessarily going to have to be different. But you have to be fair as well. And that's what everything has, you know, we've learned that again and again, that green policies have to be fair policies. And that's why a policy like a frequent flyer levy is fair, because it means that the person doesn't fly very often can still do it. The person who's flying a lot to their second, third homes is going to think twice. In a word, Chris, why not? Well, I personally feel that sort of this degrowth argument won't wash. It won't people won't buy into it. Made one. That, wasn't, that isn't a degrowth argument. That, I mean, that, on that issue specifically, which is fly less. Yeah, yeah. Fly less. so that's sort of a degrowthing argument in a way for a sector. For a sector. Well, you're basically sort of saying that you can't people who can't do things. You're restricting people's freedoms, and that will play into this libertarian sort of opposition argument. And you're not going to win it. That's the reality of, of it. Isn't that the nature of a climate emergency, though? Is that, is that it, it, there are very important respects in which we have to live differently? Net zero is you're able to, to reduce our carbon emissions and grow our economy at the same time you know, and recognise that this tragedy, the Commons argument, there is not going to work. There is no example anywhere where there has been an absolute decoupling of production on the one hand and emissions on the other. There is relative decoupling. So yes, there's a certain amount of growth that can be offset by greater efficiency. But there is nowhere on earth where there has been absolute decoupling of those two things at anything like a fast enough rate to mean that we can go on with business as usual. As things stand with the economic systems that we have, what growth inevitably feeds climate change, it looks like. You can certainly re- reduce the rate of, of 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 the impact on the climate, but I'm saying that you can't think that you can just go on with business as usual and somehow technological efficiency is going to cancel out the extra growth that you're producing. But to challenge you slightly, I mean, you might not see this as a challenge, but it is interesting to me, as someone whose politics are on the, the left, that capitalism, bluntly speaking, in other words, companies, are far ahead, it seems to me, very often, of where government is on this. And they don't very often seem as awful and self-interested and polluting as the more malign portrait of them would suggest. There are, there are very big companies doing very, very companies. good things. There are some great companies who are crying out for the government to put in place consistent, certain policy frameworks so they can have the confidence to invest. I don't deny that for a moment. 
But there are also quite a lot of companies out there, and we've touched on them already, the ones who are going to be uh, rocking up in... Um, These are petrochemical companies, S.O. and Shell and Texco. Exactly, and who are going to try and pretend that we can carry on with business as usual through the technological fix either of sustainable aviation fuels or of carbon capture and storage. And the bottom line is right now, we need to get our emissions down now and we can't just believe in technology in the future. Um, we don't often talk, or people don't often talk in the course of political coverage about how people feel. And I wanted to ask you about fear. Most of what happens in politics, you know, I get quite passionate and riled about very often, but it doesn't stop me sleeping. And it's in the nature of this issue that I, like probably lots of most people, lots of or most people, I feel scared about this. Um, you know, you have to live as if the truth is true. And we know what the truth is here. I wonder how much, how much each of you feel that. You must have moments of feeling scared, Chris. But every summer when I see those images of Greek islands on fire and I see crazy weather in America and the crazy weather here and I look to the future and I wonder what on earth is going to happen. I feel that very, very deeply. Yeah, I do feel that you know, we have a choice. We've got a choice between 1.5 to... If we hit... The policies we put in place potentially stops us from hitting four degrees of warming by 2100, which would be completely disastrous. And yeah, the migration patterns that will occur potentially, you know, this is not sort of a, an apocalypse, but you know, actually within a century, you know, we will see catastrophic change, uh, but it's up to our generation to do something about it, not to sit in a road, not to then not have kids and all this other stuff that's going to potentially actually, we need to just grip and be rational about being optimistic. I think the rational optimism is where I, I come from. I, I feel scared and I feel incredibly sad at what we're losing. And I think that's quite a widespread feeling, particularly among young people. And this thing of eco-grief or planetary grief or something is, is, is a real thing, I think. And in, in a way, it's a very rational response to the, to the facts that we have in front of us. Having said that, I, I do feel it's important to, to believe that things can change. And the wonderful writer, Rebecca Solnit, makes a, a nice distinction between kind of optimism on the one hand, which is like just sitting on a sofa, clutching your lottery ticket, hoping that, well, hoping that things are going to be okay. And the kind of hope that she talks about where she says it's what breaks down doors with in an emergency. It gets you out there because you believe things can be different and you know that you have to be part of that, of that movement, if you like. So that's what keeps me going. But absolutely, I think this is bloody scary. I suppose the one little ray of light in the midst of all this is if, heaven forfend, the two guests on this week's podcast had been you, Caroline, and Lee Anderson, I think I would walk out of here feeling acutely depressed. But the fact that I have sensed a reasonable measure of consensus and common cause between the two of you, I suppose, is just about enough reason to, to get out of bed in the morning. And on, on that note of qualified optimism, we will close. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And for more on COP28, on this week's Politics Weekly America, Jonathan Friedland speaks to Jerome Foster, a climate activist and member of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. The two of them discuss Joe Biden's decision to skip the COP conference this year and the message that sends to particularly younger voters who want the US to do more to tackle the climate emergency. This episode is produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtehaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian.
Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash Nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung.